So I want to begin with a word of prayer, and then we will uh, we'll jump into our study tonight on, on identity, and uh, hopefully by the time we're done, we have a greater understanding of uh, what the Bible teaches specifically in terms of who we are. So let's pray. God, I thank you for the scriptures and for the fact that uh, anthropologists and psychologists and philosophers and um, armchair quarterbacks and soccer moms are trying to figure out this question, who, who are we? What are we about? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Uh, these are questions that uh, humanity has been asking for a really long time, and there's been tons of answers to that. And I'm grateful for uh, just your patience with us, but I'm, I'm more grateful for the fact that you did not leave us wondering, but you gave us a word, a revelation. Because uh, I don't know how well we could have totally figured it out. I don't think we could have. But you have revealed um, some things about us that I just see as true. Um, there is something unique about humanity in this world. Uh, there is something um, divine that actually exists because of you in us. And we'll be able to talk about that tonight. And I'm just, I'm grateful for that. Um, somehow it just seems appropriate that when, uh, when humanity is mistreated, that an injustice has been done. And I just thank you for your word that reveals that truth. And I pray, Father, that our hearts and minds would be shaped by what your scriptures teach. And that we would not be here, uh, Father, to make much of ourselves, but to discover ourselves in you. Uh, there is, a, I think, a human tendency that we have, God, that we, we want to kind of strip away the things that we are to find what's in the middle. And uh, instead, you, you teach us that it's, it's not that simple. That instead, there is something that is much deeper and richer within us. And it's not by stripping away all of the layers, all of the, um, the different identities that we get to the core, but instead by your revelation, you've given us a picture of what is at the middle. And then the rest of life seems to make sense when it's built around it. And I just pray that that is what we would do, especially as your image bearers, as your ambassadors, that we would remember who we are in you, who we are in Jesus, and that we would live like that. And we need your help to do that. And it's in Jesus' name we give you thanks for this hour. Amen. So if you take a look, um, kind of where we are on our notes, um, I'm going to just kind of recap a little bit. Uh, we have not quite dealt with made in the image of God yet. Um, but what I do want to talk about just kind of quickly is um, the last three responses throughout history on what is our place within creation. And so if you find on that, on, on last week's handout, it says our place in creation. It gives some points about who we are, that we were made from the dust of the ground. There is a mortal element to us uh, that we are all painfully aware of, right? Uh, it, is, uh, it describes, uh, the Bible describes that it is destined, every human wants to, wants to live and then wants to die and then the judgment of God comes upon them. And so... Uh, you can't, you can't escape death. You can't avoid death. It is something that happens to all of us, and it's, it's in our identity. It's, it's, um, it's, it's interesting because with the fall, we have to kind of add a whole new layer to this. The, the world that we live in now, uh, the broken world that we live in now, death is a part of life. 
And I remember being uh, freaked out by that. I don't know if you've ever been freaked out by that. I still remember a time in my life where I was absolutely freaked out by the idea of death. We had just moved, and I don't know if that kind of caused a transition in my life. I just remember staying at my sister's while we were, because uh, we'd moved from Eastern Canada to Western Canada. So we were staying at my sister's house for a while as we were just getting ready for our stuff to travel across the country. And when that happened, um, I, I remember lying on the couch at my sister's house late at night, and I would wake up, and my own mortality was just very real. And I just became afraid. And I remember thinking about my parents passing away and I just became, and I couldn't sleep. And I can just, I can still remember that time when my heart would just race. I was just very aware of the fact. I remember talking to my dad about it. How do I ever live with this? How do I ever, how do I ever get over the fact that someday I'm gonna die and someday you're gonna die? Like, I don't like that. And my dad said to me in his wisdom, eh, you'll get used to it. And I said, what do you mean I'll get used to it? And he said, son, I can't explain it to you. I know what you're going through is normal. But just as you go through life and you continue to go through life and you continue to go through life, and maybe you'll say you you disagree with my dad. I'm totally cool with that. But he just said, as you get older, it just seems like the natural end of things. And then he says, as the followers of Jesus Christ, we don't believe it's the end of things. (laughs) But you just do, you just, you kind of feel like you're, everything kind of slowing down in your body. And um, I, I, I'm beginning to understand kind of what he's talking about. And so there is this, this natural progression that we, we go towards and the Bible describes it as that. They also, it's good to know that, the, that human nature is good and not evil, that there is, a, we'll talk more about this tonight when we talk about humanity and sin, but there is something in the humanity that is truly good. And I don't say that to win your approval. I don't say that uh, to be popular with culture. That's what the Bible teaches, that when God made everything, when God made humanity, he said, behold, it is good. Um, it, it is very good when he made humanity. He makes everything else and it's good. He makes humanity in, in his image and he says, behold, it is very good. And I think it's important for us to get that element in there because when we look at wrongness in the world, when we look at injustice in the world, when we look at evil in the world, we're supposed to be able to go, something's wrong with that. Like something is broken with that. I spent some time this summer when we were in Poland at Auschwitz and you just, you, you see the horror of that. And what is it? There's something wrong with that. Like that's not the way that God made us. I don't look at that and go, oh, that's an interesting option. Like, what is it? You just, you know that to treat humanity like that is like, is, is evil. And then you don't go, oh, that's just evil. You know, it's kind of like blue. Some like blue and some like green and some like good and some like evil. No, we, unless you're sick, unless you're mentally um, really like something's wrong mentally, you should be able to be repulsed by evil. And why is that? And there is a sense in which, because there is a good that actually exists and it exists in us. Um, It's the way God made it. And then the last part of this, which is that human beings are estranged and fallen and corrupted. That in the, in the best of us, there is still a brokenness. And we're gonna unpack that more tonight. Now, here are some, some three early, early responses that the church had to deal with. And the first one was that Gnostic posed the first challenge to the Christian view. Um, the Gnostics were the ones who believed there was this secret knowledge and this, you'll, you'll think, wow, are, is, are, is that Oprah Winfrey? And kind of, it's, it's, it's becoming resurgent, actually. This idea that there is within all of humanity a divine spark that exists, And what we're designed to do is to somehow find our inner divine self. By the way, that's very different than the image of God being imprinted upon us. 
And so we'll talk about what the image of God might be, but that's not what we're talking about here. They're saying, no, there is something divine that is inside of us. And the Gnostics were developed from a Greek philosophy that really hated the physical and thought to escape the physical reality, um, to somehow go into the spiritual realm was the best goal. And a lot of our views of heaven, strangely enough, come from Gnostics and Greek philosophy. The idea of floating around in bodiless existence is not a biblical idea. It is more of a Greek Gnostic type of idea. And yet how many of us, when we think about, I asked a young lady recently when I said, what is heaven like? Because all she could see was this world and this life. And I was asking her what heaven's going to be like. And I don't know fully what it's going to be like, but when she began to describe it, I just go, yeah, I don't want to go there either to float around and just kind of not really do anything. And I just go, why did God make all of this and call it good if that's what he wanted? See what I mean? So the Gnostics and the early church basically said, you, you can't say that the body, meaning the, the, the flesh, not fleshly, not sinful, not lust, but you can't say the body itself is evil. That's not a Christian response. And so the early church had to stand up and say, no, that's not true. No, that philosophy is not right. The Bible teaches, and they would confront that mindset. Well, obviously, as the church gained prominence and its teaching, um, you're going to see this particular idea that humanity is a special creature of God's image, of, of God, that, that God, sorry, that God made in his image and likeness, composed of body and soul. It is fallen but redemptive. So you almost the Christian view, right? As, as, uh, as, as, the, as the Catholic Church began to, uh, began to expand, I say that both small C and capital C Catholic Church, began to expand and began to grow and began to evangelize the world, much of the world, um, that doctrine went with it and began to go uh, absolutely everywhere. And by the way, shaped a lot of other world religions. So Christianity and, and, and Judaism shaped a lot of other world religions and they saw something special, something very unique in humanity. And so for what we will call the, the pre-modern response, which would be that time period from about 400 AD all the way up to about 1400, 1500 as the Renaissance is developing and then the Enlightenment period comes up, the, the, the view of humanity was, was God's crowning achievement. It's interesting. I don't know where you are at because we have different age groups here. But when, when, when you say nowadays that humanity is God's crowning achievement in the universe, people would boo that in most settings. What do you mean? No, 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 no. They don't, they don't see it that way. But that was definitely the response during what we're gonna call, call that, that, that pre-modern era. They just saw there was something special. So there was still this desire and this goal. Uh, a lot of the early scientific inquiries came from their understanding of that the universe has been given to us by God to, um, uh, to subdue. I mean, I know these words sound offensive to you, but they don't have to be wrong. They don't have to be bad. They don't have to be exploitive or manipulative. Okay, there's other ways to treat the environment and those things. So I know that it gets wrong. Humanity seems to wreck everything we begin to, to get our hands on to at some level because of our fallen nature. But that, that really kind of expanded and began to grow. A lot of the, the modern scientific endeavor was because Christians looked at the world and said, hey, I really wanna consider this. I really wanna understand why God made it this way. And they felt like the world was understandable because God had given him minds like him who could understand it. And so that's why you really have in, um, in, in the Christian world much of the scientific development, not all, but much of the scientific and development because they were not 
all freaked out by nature. It literally became a, a, more of a mindset that we can understand this and we can begin to, we begin to work it, we can begin to develop it, we can begin to, in, the, in essence, we can begin to subdue it. And so they didn't have this kind of, this weird reverence for it. They had more of a, uh, kind of more of a biblical view and then obviously that, that can be misunderstood and misused as well. Then lastly, the, the modern response that we actually see uh, developing in the 15, 16, 1700s and then all the way up until today um, is this quote by Alexander Pope in his essay on man. Know then thyself, seek not God to scan, the proper study of mankind is man. And so one of the most interesting definitions of humanity is this. We are digestive systems that know we're going to die. We're digestive systems that know we're going to die. In essence, we are just animals. We are just creatures, that evolutionary uh, byproduct of, uh, of, of years and chance and all of that. And so that has become in many ways the modern response. And so you can begin to understand why both in philosophy and as well as in science, when you believe that about us, when you believe that humanity is nothing more than a digestive system with a consciousness of itself, if that's all that we are, then you, you have a, a whole different attitude and a whole different mindset. And so now all of a sudden there is more of a, we got to make the most of the years we have digesting food. We have to make the most of the opportunities that we're going to have. We have to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so a whole new kind of hedonism which is a love of the satisfaction of the things of this world develops and continues to grow. And you can see why in the last, say, one or 200 years, there is an incredible development of, of humanity's quest and humanity's goal without any kind of ethical guardrails that were going alongside of it. And in the end, the problem becomes without, and this is, this is kind of one of the dangers, without a moral code, Without a word from the outside, without any kind of understanding what would be the guideline deciding what right and wrong is. See, so you have within the early, early centuries, and then you have with, even within the, 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 pre, the, the pre-modern era, you have this understanding that we are under God. When you remove God from the equation and you kind of make us God, then all of a sudden you see, oh my goodness, what, what does it matter? Who's going to hold me accountable? So you have the replacement. Um, and, and for those of you that have heard this statement, I think, therefore, I am, um, by Rene Descartes, the, the, the French philosopher. And that idea of I think, therefore, I am is uh, actually in, in its original intention is I'm not going to allow anything to influence my thinking except for the fact of, of my reasoning. And so I'm going to doubt what everybody has told me. I'm not going to believe it because the church has told me and I'm not gonna believe it because culture has told me and I'm gonna begin to doubt everything and I'm only going to believe those things that I can verify and that I can prove. And so the real statement that he made was I doubt I doubt everything. And he would doubt and doubt and doubt. And then very much kind of still within kind of a logical syllogism. And he would write, I doubt, but I guess I cannot doubt that I'm doubting because I said that I'm doubting. And so therefore, follow me here. You cannot say I'm doubting and then doubt that you're doubting because your a priori idea kind of stands true. And that's where the statement, I think, therefore I am, comes from. It's I doubt 
And the one thing I cannot doubt is the existence of the doubter. Now we would say, oh yeah, you can, I get that. But that, he could not, he could not kind of, that would be a, a logical contradiction that was not going to happen to him. But what he did was, instead of something else speaking truth in, he was now uh, making truth. He was now becoming self-evident of this. And that became a very dangerous uh, kind of way way to operate because now instead of God speaking to us or instead of the church or institution speaking to us, now all of a sudden Rene and and the rest of those that followed him could say, no, I'm gonna kind of do it on my own. I don't need anybody else to tell me what to think. I don't need anybody else to kind of give me an authority uh, over me or rules or regulations. I'm going to, to, to self-discover my, 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 my meaning and my purpose. So let's talk a little bit about kind of how we see this idea of being made in the image of God. Um, that is a phrase that actually comes from the Genesis material. So what does it mean to have in Latin the Imago Dei? The image of God um, uh, is actually referred to by a lot of uh, people as our reasoning capacity. There's a lot of uh, church fathers that said, how do we know we're made in the image of God? And it literally is kind of like our reasoning capacities, our ability to be be logic and systematic. Um, Over the centuries, though, that there has been other ways to try to approach this this question. And they're saying, no, it's not just reason. For some say, some would argue it's our immortality. So Christian theologians believe what it means to be made in the image of God is that although we are not eternal beings, meaning we don't go all the way backwards, but we do go all the way. We we keep going into eternity, the Bible teaches. And so maybe that's what it is that we are made in the image of God. Not only can we reason and understand things like no other beings uh, that that we know of in the universe, um, but we also have a a sense and the Bible teaches. So they're they're not trying to prove these things apart from the biblical text but that we go on and on and on and on and on with God. And therefore, maybe the immortal aspect of who we are. Um, our consciousness, or so not just our reasoning, but the fact that we are self-aware, or the ability to respond to God's word, or the idea of having freedom to choose things. Maybe that's what it means to be made in the image of God. Or having dominion over the earth. Maybe that's what it means to, have, to be made in the image of God. Um, uh, what's, what's interesting is there has no, never been a Christian thinker that relates the, the, the image of God idea that God has a bod, okay? That's never, that's never been the idea. So when we talk about being made in the image of God, the one thing that no Christian thinker has ever said is that when we see God, he will look like this. Now, Jesus will, that's a different matter. But even Jesus talks like this, doesn't he? He describes God and what does he say? God is spirit, God is everywhere. How can you be physically everywhere? And so God has something that is obviously very unique and very different. And the one thing that we do not believe, and, and therefore to even think of God as like a uh, man proper, like literally, like not a woman, but a man, is actually an, uh, not true. It's not accurate, actually. Even though it might describe him in the masculine sense, he's not masculine in the way that, that, that for those of us that are men in this room, that we are masculine. That's not how he is masculine. And so for whatever reason, God revealed himself with that term. Um, We just know that that's not what he is uh, officially describing as. Um, So some people describe this as instead of it being a matter of this reasoning capacity or consciousness, some will actually argue that it's our kind of our anthropological or our relational capacity. 
Um, this is a really interesting concept that, that what makes us being made in the image of God is our, our capacity for relationships, to just genuinely be brothers and sisters in Christ and fathers and mothers, that there is something in God that he bestows in us that has a highly relational component, a deeply relational component. Um, this actually was developed years later um, as they began to think through, particularly that in the Genesis narrative, Genesis 1, 2 and, and Genesis 1 and 2, during the, 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 the two different descriptions of how the world was made, they're not contradictory, but if you read them, you'll say, wow, is that, what's going on there with Genesis 1 and 2? Go back and read it and you'll see what I'm talking about. But in the Genesis narrative, what you actually see is that God existing, not just by himself, i.e. God the Father by himself, but that the Father is existing in unison with the Spirit and the Son. Um, that the Word of God, as John reveals to us, was with God in the beginning. Everything was made by him and through him. Without him, nothing was made. So the Bible actually teaches that God exists as one in community. And then we share that with him. It's not, um, it's, by the way, this is, you'll have to take point with God on this issue. It's not good for humanity to be alone. Now, you might think, oh, no, actually, I like being alone. Okay, that, that may not be a good thing because you're disagreeing with God on that. I'm not saying that you, you need an afternoon off. I'm totally cool with that. I get that. But to be alone, to seek aloneness, to avoid human contact and interaction and is, to be, is to deny who God originally intended you to be. It's, I would argue it's more of a, a dysfunction or a, a sin that needs to be repented of more than it is anything else. There is something that God has given us. And so the relational aspect of this, I would say that any kind of definition where it looks like a character trait or even our relational component is probably too narrow. I don't know why we would ever want to identify the image of God in humanity with one particular function or aspect. I think it's better to describe it as there is something in humanity that it has what is called personhood. Okay, there is a, a personhood that we share with the divine. Um, it is the psycho-spiritual ability and function that transcends mere nature and physicality through a reasoning ability, a needed capacity for community, cultural creativity, development of language, communication, worship, self-transcendence, freedom, and responsibility. It's all of these things that really describe what the Imago Day is. To be made in the image of God, I think, is all of those things, this all-encompassing picture, and that's what God has given to us so that you and I, and this is what's very interesting, so that you and I can enjoy him, so that we can enjoy even the creation that he gave us, so that there's somehow this divine, not, 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 not just spark like within, but it is a divine gift that he has given to us where we are able to um, appreciate things. You know, God did not make, and this is kind of an interesting idea, God did not make us out of an inward compulsion or need. The Bible teaches that God is self-sufficient in himself. So God wasn't missing. You know, it's like, I remember when Andrew and I, uh, before we had kids, wanted to have kids, and it felt like something was missing, right? Felt like something was missing. And then we had kids and wondered why. But there was a moment there when we were, we were really, really wanting kids because something was missing, and, and God didn't have that. God didn't, Oh, man, I could just, I could be such a better God if I, you realize you, you can't have a better God. You have to have a ne different definition of God. And so it is out of the overflow, not out of the need, not out of like a, a vacuous hole that exists inside of them that God created us. And God finds pleasure in this. 
And we are then to find pleasure in the world. We're to find pleasure in what God has made. And that's what describes um, the idea of us uh, being made, I think, in his image, to the best of our ability to understand. Now, I'm gonna spend just a few moments, not a lot on here. Um, Some of you have thought through this, and uh, just because of this class, I had to think about this a lot more than I had for a long time since I was in seminary. Um, So I don't know if you are trichotomists or dichotomists when it comes to this. But when I describe humanity or when I describe you know, what, what, what we have, the Bible describes us as having a body, correct? The Bible describes us as having a soul, correct? And the Bible describes us having a spirit, correct? So then how many components are we? Now, what's usually never up for debate is the first one. I wonder what he means by body in the, in the Greek sarks. Well, it's... it's Okay, it's our body. So there's no real question there. But what about the other two things? So a dichotomist, what do I have first? I have dichotomy first. A dichotomist actually believes that we have, we're made up of two things. Um, and this matters. This actually matters. For those people who are, uh, who, who are against this. Now there are monists, who I don't have listed here, And a monist actually believes that there is complete unity within it. It is body, soul, spirit. It is just, it is just one thing. Most actually say, no, there's, there seems to be something else that I have this body that I exist in, but what happens when my body ceases to exist? Do I cease to exist? And as believers, but you don't have to be a follower of Jesus Christ or a Christian to actually believe that something else exists. Have you ever been in that difficult situation? I know this is kind of a strange question to ask. Have you ever watched someone pass? And you watch someone pass and there's no more breath and you just think, we talked about this last week, right? I remember looking at you, Dr. Roach. Um, I just remember thinking to myself, what just happened? And where did they go? Okay, and so we're not the first, and this is kind of a, something that humanity's asked for a long time. And so you have the body and the soul slash spirit. That would be a dichotomist. They basically are saying that you have this physical body that you have, and then you have a spiritual component, which sometimes is described as a soul or sometimes is described as a spirit. But it's the same thing, body, spirit, or, or sorry, soul, spirit. It's the same thing. Your soul and your spirit is that which relates to God. So some people actually would describe it your, as your consciousness, right? So to be conscious, if you think about that for a second, to be conscious and to be able to kind of reason through and think through and relate to God is not so much a physical thing. Now, if you just don't believe in God, then what's happening is neurons going on in your brain and chemical reactions, those kinds of things. But still, the Bible argues there's something else that's actually happening there. And so a dichotomist believes in one, two aspects to who we are. And, and, and one of the, the biblical ideas is that both of these are made in the image of God. It's not, not this, but this. Don't make too much of this opposed to this. The apostle Paul says, and this is, this is why it can be, that's what the Greeks did, by the way. The Greeks thought about our soul or our spirit as being that which is somewhat detached. So they could literally say in the book of 1 Corinthians, I can go into a temple and sleep with a prostitute and it's just my body doing it. It's not my soul or my spirit doing it. And so I can do that. And the apostle Paul, being good Jew that he is, is actually like offended by this. And what does he say? 
How can you, the body of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit living in you, how can you in your body be joined to a, 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 like a demon, in essence, because of the pagan worship and the, and the prostitute that exists there? That Do you not know that any... Any sin a person commits, they commit outside of the body. But when one commits sexual immorality, they don't just sin against, you know, generic things. They sin against the body. And so the Apostle Paul makes a big deal about this. So when you're looking at this idea, there is a unity that exists between these. But there is something that is happening here. And there is something that is happening here. There is something that is going to stop. And then there's something that is not going to stop. Occasionally, you will actually see the phrase, Paul uses this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I believe in verse 22 or 23, one of my favorite verses of scripture. Paul says, may your whole body, soul, and spirit be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and God will see that through, by the way. May your body and soul and spirit. And so there are a few texts that describe your body and your soul and your spirit as like there's three things. And kind of how they describe it is your body is, again, like your body. Your soul is kind of that, that, uh, that, that part that goes on after you die. And then this is where they get a little bit, get, get, I'm not going to go much further than this. They believe this is that which communicates this to God. That's what a trichotomist would believe. Now, that's kind of how it has been described over, over humanity. I, I think the, the part that I just want you to hear is, without knowing exactly how all of this works, I think it is critical that we understand the Bible teaches that we're not just bodies and that we're not just souls. Like the part that I love about what the biblical material teaches me is that I am a, a unified being. I could almost be more of like a monist, a person who believes more in that complete unison of oneself. Um, we, we, we long to be uh, with one another and we long to be, quote, quote unquote, in the body. And our, a lot of our views of the afterlife are shaped, like I said earlier, by Greek thought. But I believe that what we're going to have for eternity is what God intended for the beginning. So however you want to slice it up, we are going to still always be body, soul, spirit people. That's how God has made us. And we will always, we will always be that. And therefore, we have a theology of the body, which, by the way, will then shape our sexual ethics. It will shape how we treat our bodies. Paul makes it very clear. Like, your body is not your own. Like, bodies shape marriages. Your view of your body shapes your marriage. The Apostle Paul, if you didn't have a, under any kind of theology of identity or body, then I'm gonna do what I want. It's my body. I can do what I want with it. Well, Paul says, no, actually, that's not true. <laughs> don't you remember? You were bought with a price. You don't have a body anymore. That body is Christ's. Therefore, honor, your God, honor the Lord your God with your body, right? He doesn't say with your spirit. He says with your body. Like there is a physical need that we have. And so he actually says, like, Andrea's body is not her own anymore. Whose is it? Yeah, mine. Her body is mine. And that is a critical component in marriage. And when we don't recognize that, this is where things begin to break down. 
When, when she doesn't recognize that her body is not her own, it's ultimately Christ. And then now through the covenant of marriage, through the beautiful covenant of marriage, not just we love each other, but the covenant of marriage, that covenant relationship, her body is now for me to enjoy and vice versa. This is like a key Christian doctrine. And you almost have to fly in the face of this. This, this idea of body and, and how critical it is that we understand how, how, how important that basically is to our own identity shapes our relationships in terms of how we function. And so to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to recognize how God has made us and what then the implications are. So our bodies were not made for sexual immorality. Paul says that. Our bodies were not made for sexual immorality. They're made for purity and holiness. Therefore, you need to recognize what your body is and use it appropriately. And when we just go, ah, you know, there was a song years ago that just talked about, hey, we're all animals. We're just kind of like the animals on Animal Planet, just having sex. That's really all we're doing. Really. And why are so many people like distraught when they are, feel sexually exploited? Why don't they go, oh yeah, I was sexually exploited, but it was like nothing. It was kind of like just eating a cheeseburger. They, 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 there's something that you cannot deny. There's something when we treat our bodies, which are the temple of the Holy Spirit living in us, when we don't treat those properly. By the way, that's not a, a reason to lose 20 pounds, okay? You should just lose 20 pounds for other reasons. Okay, I'm trying, but we, that's, what we, that's what I think we should do. But it's not describing us trying to become like physical specimens. That's really not what the Bible is describing. It is far more interested in us exerting things like, and then this, this does actually kind of go into this, but self-control over our bodies. So you're not just a body. So you're not just impulses. That's, that's one of the reasons why, this is kind of a little caveat here, one of the reasons why I take fasting seriously in my life is to, to teach my body that it is not in control of my life. I don't know about you, but I, I, get, I get to a point in my life where I have like a desire for something physical and then I just satisfy it as quickly as I can. I, one of the most embarrassing things, when I used to live on the other side of town and I'd come back from an elders meeting, it was not, I, I share this, it's embarrassing, but I, I believe in transparency. Um, I would stop at Taco Bell and just get like one or two tacos and then I would grab like a cheeseburger at McDonald's on the way home. Now I know, I mean, I, I would just would because I wanted a taco. I wish they would make them at the same place, but they didn't. So I would do this and I would do this. And I would, it, literally my wife's shaking her head. She has under, no idea what I'm, what I'm talking about. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? Like that just sounds like a great day. Thank you, brother. I, I, amen, amen. Uh, but they're really, and I, I'll look at me and I'll, I'll say, but it's not just that. Like, I mean, in terms of like pride and in terms of lust, I have an urge and I'm gonna meet it. I have an urge and I'm gonna, f anger, Man, I'm mad and I'm just gonna respond. And so one of the reasons why I fast is to go, no, you don't. You're not gonna do that. You're not made for this. The body, is, the body is made for more than food. That's what Jesus teaches. That food will perish. That the word of God will last forever. And so one of the things that I try to do is how, how do I have like a better theology of my identity, who I, God ultimately made me to be? It does shape us more than we actually realize. Well, I'm gonna go through this quick because tonight's handout's actually gonna kind of fluff it out a lot more. But the fall of humanity obviously is a big piece. We talk about this, that although we're made in God's image and there really is something that is good and wonderful, um, you know that in Genesis 3, something is lost. 
You know that when sin entered into the world and um, the evil one tempted Eve with the possibility of the knowledge of good and evil, and when she ate and when Adam ate, all of a sudden their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked and something had radically changed. We'll talk more about what some of those implications are. But right now what I wanna just kind of end with from last week's lesson is there was something that was lost and then there was something that was not lost. So I wanna just kind of wrap up with, with, with talking about these things. The, a couple of things that were lost are, are this. Number one, innocence was lost. There was an innocence that existed that, that, was, that was removed. I remember, I won't say which one of my boys it was, but I remember when one of my boys all of a sudden began to look at girls different. I won't say who it was because it was Matthew and he's here tonight. But I remember looking into his eyes one time and I could just tell he was seeing them different. And I just remember thinking, oh, ah, it's gone. No longer is it just, oh yeah, it's Susan or it's a girl. It's like, it's a girl. And that kind of starstruck in his eyes. And I just remember thinking, you can't go back. You just can't go back. Like something's lost. Now, by the way, that's, that's a, what, he, what he was describing there. It was, it, was a, it was a human response. It was a natural response. But have you ever watched someone with innocence lost? All of a sudden, you realize and you can't go back. Uh, even a lot of the brokenness that exists in the world, we just now that we see the brokenness that exists in the world, you just can't go back. So there is an innocence that is lost. And then the bigger issue that is described in the book of Revelation is uh, the relationship that is lost. And I wanna describe that a little bit. What, what do we mean by the relationship is lost? Instead of humanity, um, our first parents, Adam and Eve, instead of humanity trusting God and believing in God, they all of a sudden had the opportunity to not trust in God or believe in God. I'll tell you a weird story. I, I use this story actually quite a bit. So some of you may have heard me say it before. When I was in graduate school, there was a young man that came over from Thailand, Stephen. And Stephen stayed with us for about, about or stayed uh, kind of at, at school where we were at for about a year or so. And his wife, Mary, did not come with him. And so after a while, it was gonna, you know, he had kind of gotten to the States and we were in Illinois together and he was kind of settling in. And then Mary and the children came over after that. And I remember when I, I was asking him at kind of like a dinner function that we were having one night, I asked him, I said, how is Mary doing? How is she getting along? Because, you know, you've been here for a while, but here is Mary who doesn't speak any English, who is now in a completely different world, you know, completely different place, um, Raised, trying to raise kids and they're trying to go to school. Like, how is she doing, right? Because it can be hard and you're at school all the time. How is Mary doing? And he looked at me and went, what do you mean, how is Mary doing? She's fine. I said, no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. See, that's, you're a guy. You think she's fine. She's probably at home terrified. And he said, no, she's not, she's fine. And I said, ah, yeah, right. So I remember going and asking Mary, how are you doing? And she said, I'm fine. And I went, no, 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 how are you really doing? And she said, no, I'm fine. And neither of them couldn't understand what I was getting at. So, you know, as a good American, I was just trying to let them know, well, there's lots of things to be afraid of. And there's, what, what if, you know, have you thought about what's gonna happen if, and, 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 and what was fascinating was she had this incredible um, cultural trust in her husband. And so when I was describing like things that she might want to be afraid of, she would say things like, well, why would Stephen put me in a situation like that? <laughs> and I'm going, because he's a guy. Like, well, no, but Stephen would have, Stephen's already gone through all of these things and he's a great husband and he's, he is this faithful protector. And I'm going, you are so naive. 
And she's going, do you know something about Stephen I don't know? And I'm going, no, I think Stephen's a great guy. But it was fascinating to see, it's like a child, right? Which is not always bad. Stephen was a great husband. I, I would even argue it may not be the best thing to go, go around and say, well, I'll tell you what you really need to do is not trust people. How's that working for you? To be blind to some of that is actually a good thing. Let me ask you a question. So those times you don't trust in God to take care of you, has that helped you? Has that made you a better person? That made your relationship stronger? Those times you've just decided that, yeah, okay, I know Jim said to trust in God, but give me a break. God helps those who help themselves. Okay, how's that working for you? Can God be trusted? Yes. Do you trust him? No. Why? See, there's something broken, isn't there? He can be fully trusted in everything. And yet we don't trust as like we should, correct? We don't have faith like we should. And so that brokenness is something that happened in the fall. It's, it's something that we, we obviously lost. Now, not everything is, is lost in the fall, by the way. For example, and this is important, um, dependence upon God is something that always exists. Before the fall, there was a dependence upon God. God needed to make the garden. He needed to supply air for them to breathe and supply life in their lungs. So there's always a dependence on God. We never lost. Um, it never changed. It wasn't like, yeah, we used to be independent beings and then all of a sudden we sinned and now we have to depend on God. No, no, no. It was always us in a relationship where we would depend on God. Another thing that was not lost is human dignity. Human dignity was not lost. Going back to the image, when even though, and this is what's interesting, even though we are sinners, and even though that we have sinned, and this is why Christ dying for us and purchasing us has great value to it. Why? Because being made in the image of God, there is still a dignity that exists. The life that has been given to us, the breathing in and out that we have, that life that we have is a gift from God. It cannot be taken from you without there being divine retribution, actually. It's interesting that the Bible even says that the ground cries out. I think it's kind of a personification. The ground cries out when there is injustice done. And I don't know about you, but I look at human history and I look at a lot of the atrocities that happen and I just have to stop and wonder, hmm, like I wonder if that's what happens when you mistreat humanity like you do. Like you look at the atrocities that plagued Europe for a very, very long time and still do in many ways. Yeah, well, you, just, you, can't, you can't treat people like that for that long and expect to not do I really do, again, just as kind of me just theologizing. When you treat humans like property and you have slavery, then don't be surprised that you will eventually have a war where hundreds of thousands of non-innocents die. And I see even a lot of the, the, the injustice that continues now on every side. And I just go, yeah, that's what you get. It's just what you get. You, you, can't, you can't avoid it, can you? The brokenness that exists in the world. That's why I, I don't think we, can, we can't escape um, the, the murdering of children um, under the banner of choice and just think that somehow God won't level that. 
I just don't believe you can. There's dignity that existed even after the fall. And I would even argue the fact that we don't see it is a sign of how deep the fall went with inside of us. It just doesn't deny what's there. So God will not be mocked and justice will come. So dignity. And then alongside of that, I guess it's, it kind of fits very closely, but value. There is a worth that exists within us for humanity's sake, uh, or for, for God's sake and, and for humanity's benefit. Um, there is a value that exists within human life. And what's amazing is that God sees that, God knows that, God pursues that, God redeems that. Um, I just want you to remember this, kind of the last, the last little note before we jump into humanity and sin, that that is there by God's giftedness. So when anyone says, like, I don't have any value or I don't have any worth, most, most people, and, and you can tell me if I'm, honestly, let's sit down and talk. It seems like when people are doing that, the majority of times when I've done it personally or I'm trying to help somebody else find dignity or value, they're looking for it in some way other than God's gifting it to them. I'm just not having any value or worth. Why? Because my job's not going really well. Like I'm not really doing well at my job. And if I could do well at my job and be successful and drive a nice car, then I would have value and worth. But I'm not, I'm not really getting that value and worth. No, you have value or worth. It's by, by being by the, the imprint of God pressed upon your soul. The fact that Jesus Christ went to Calvary and died for you, like you have a value. Eh, it's not really working for me. But if I could just get a pair of Adidas, you know, the ones with the stripes on, you know. If I could just, if I could just have a child, if I could just stay in a relationship, if I could just get married, if I could just have what? And when we chase it outside of the true image of God bearer, then it'll always be like escaping or it'll be at some level temporary. Well, you know, I find it in my, in my youthfulness. Yeah, that'll never, that'll never leave you. I find it in my, much of our fascination with beauty is looking for an identity apart from the way God intended it to be, right? And so what do we do? We work on staying young, like somehow that'll, that'll help. And then we, um, we lie about our ages. We say, don't ask about our ages. I've never understood why that was a bad thing to ask about somebody's age. I've literally never understood that. Um, when, when you look at those things, it's, it really shows like a, uh, an inability to recognize a value or a worth that goes beneath so where do you find your identity? And that dignity and value is not gone because of your sinfulness. That's the amazing fact. Sinfulness did not remove your worth or your value because if it did, then God would have redeemed something of no worth. And it, it was. So it's a gift. I really wanna challenge you that if you're struggling with identity issues, if you're struggling with like a, 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 a I would argue, I'm not a big fan of the phrase like uh, a poor or a, a bad self-esteem because people who have a bad self-esteem seem to like to talk about themselves all the time. So they have a very high self-esteem. It's just not biblical. It's not a biblical self-esteem. It's more of a self-directed esteem. And I'm not surprised that a self-directed esteem will at some level fail you because it can't be managed. So let's, let's uh, jump over to tonight's lesson for my last 14 minutes. And I want to expand a little bit more on this idea of humanity and sin. 
What is sin? I, I, I thought about actually expanding this quite a bit, but I, it's really not part of the identity piece. But since we have now, the Bible teaches, a sinful nature, I think it would be good to know what does that mean? What is our sinful nature? Millard Erickson, the theologian, uh, wrote this, that sin is any lack of conformity, active or passive, that's a great reminder <laughs> for those people that are going, I'm not actively doing anything bad. Actually, I'm not doing anything. Yeah, okay, that too is sin. There are sins of commission, that which we do, and there are sins of omission, that which we do not do. So any kind of activity or passivity to the moral law of God where there's no conformity. This may be a matter of act, a thought, or an inner disposition or state. Sin is failure to live up to what God expects of us in act, thoughts, and being. So it is that disconnect. Interestingly enough, I love that statement um, I, I've got a lot of, the, my favorite people in my life have high expectations of me. They just expect a lot of me. And I've really loved it. I've really actually enjoyed it. I loved a father that was very demanding. I love a wife that just has high expectations. It's really been very beneficial for my, for my own sanctification. Um, and I remember one day when I began to realize, like God has expectations of me. And a lot of people don't realize that. But the, the, you read the Bible and you read how God talks about humanity, both corporately and as well as individually, there's a lot of expectation. It's not like God goes, you know, just do your best. No, that's what your parents tell you. But God doesn't say, you know, just do your best. No, God has a high standard. God has a high expectation. And so Millard Erickson is, is kind of describing that. Our, our inability to meet up what God is expecting from us that gap that exists, that is sin. It's active, it's passive, it's in thought, it's in action, it's in my being. So what does sin's influence actually have? Um, and, and, and by the way, when I, when I mean sin's, sin's influence on God, that's not what I'm describing here. I wanna describe when we have the wrong understanding of sin, not how does sin affect God. So not sin's influence, but when we don't, under, when we don't have a right view of what sin is, this is what happens. If, we have a, if, if God is a holy, pure being and expects all humans to be like him, then the slightest deviation from his standard is sin, Okay? So sin's influence on us shifts us off of the way that God ultimately made us. If God, though, let me give you another alternative. If God is imperfect or indulgent or unaware of what is going on, then sin's not that important. So what's your view of God? What's your view of God when it comes to sin? Is he holy and pure and righteous? By the way, when we talk about this statement, I've been deeply convicted by this statement. I've said it for years. Like God cannot be in the presence of sin. And it almost turns him into the bubble boy, you know? Like God's behind this plastic and you really can't get back there because, you know, he's got this really bad immune system. And so we have to stay on the other side of the tarp. <laughs> Listen, that's not how the Bible describes God. God is everywhere. God by the way, you do know, like, God has seen every um, violent act this world has ever done. God has seen every pornographic act this world has ever produced. God has seen every act of injustice, correct? We know this, right? And yet he is still pure. Because why? Because there is no, nothing in him that distorts. There's nothing in him that is perverted. So, those acts in themselves 
really give us an understanding of how, how great God is. But when we have a view of God where he is indulgent or where God is permissive or God is, we, we fail to understand just how important the sin is in our own lives. Let's talk about sin's influence when we think about humans. If humans have been made in God's image and were intended to reflect his nature, then a human will be judged not by comparison to other humans, but by conformity to the divine standard, correct? So I won't be judged like I'm better than Tim, but I'm not as good as, like that's not how it works. So the standard for me is who? God. Standard for you is who? Which by the way, let me show you how this shapes identity. Therefore, what do I have over you? What do you have over me? Because the standard is who? God. It really teaches biblical humility. This is why when God says, you don't show partiality. Because why? Because God is the standard. Because God is the ruler. God is the judge. So for me to somehow think, hey, well, guess what I am? Guess how smart I am? Guess how rich I am? Or guess how poor I am? Guess how dumb I am? You don't get it. Who are you comparing yourself to? You don't understand how this actually fits together. You don't have a biblical view of how this works. So humanity is not something we relate to one another, except I, it's even, it's almost, I, I would argue it's impossible for me to not compare myself to others. Can you imagine doing that? How, how would you do that? I don't even know how you could ever do that. Um, but the greater truth is, is that we need to remember that ultimately it's, it's God that we're dealing with. But let me give you another kind of a bad way of looking at it. If humans are free beings, not, well, actually, sorry, this, this actually is another way of describing what I like. So this isn't, this isn't the bad side. Um, humans are free beings, not simply determined by forces of nature. Therefore, they are also responsible for their actions and will be judged on, on those. So our understanding of sin shapes how we look at one another. Okay. I've got a good friend and he, he always wants to introduce me to people here. He's, you know, he's excited, likes to invite his friend to church. And he loves to say, you, you say this to me all the time, man, there's this great guy I work with. You really need to meet him. He's awesome. And then he would describe me like 12 things he's struggling with in his life. And I'm going like, that's your picture of a good guy. And so now he doesn't like saying, say, I, listen, I get what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying, but it's amazing how actually we're all pretty, pretty broken people. Um, and then notice this one on salvation. What, what is sin, our understanding of sin and what it truly is? How does it shape our view of salvation? If humans are basically good with intellectual and moral capabilities and they're still intact, then our problems are actually not um, serious problems before God. Because why? It's just a matter of um, we're kind of ignorant. We're good people, but we're kind of ignorant. And so what we actually need is education. Education will solve the problem, right? And by the way, churches do this. Education will solve the problem and a good model is all you need. That's what you need. I have been deeply convicted that me personally, I'm not trying to blame anybody else, but I, I, I see it happening in the churches I've been a part of, is I try to win people over by a really cool community. And I don't just mean cool like, tragically hip. I mean, like a really friendly, caring, loving, nurturing, you know, and then if that doesn't work, I'll tell them about Jesus. But I really hope that you come to our church because we are the friendliest people you'll ever meet and we will be there for you. And if you're sad, we'll be there for you. And if you're moving, we'll help you move. 
And we also talk about Jesus sometimes, but that's really not the point. But you should meet our people and our programming. We don't have educational problems as the core. And we don't have role model problems as the core. The Bible doesn't say that what we need is a little more information and a really good role model. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's why to, to reduce Jesus to that is to fundamentally dissolve or to do away with what he came to do. Jesus did not come to be an example. You understand that? He came to die in our place for our sins. I don't need a life coach. I need a savior. See, that's my identity. I am not just uneducated. That's why you can't fix people with education. It's why you can't fix people with role modeling. It's why you can look at people and go, why don't you get it? I've, I've been the best model that I can and I've taught you everything that I can. What is missing? And you wanna know what's missing? Jesus, faith in Jesus. And it's critical that we understand that's at the core issue. Our identity shapes our understanding of what salvation should be. And so when the Bible teaches who we are, what does it teach us? We are broken people in need of rescue, okay? And that's how we need to look at the people that we love and the people that we care for. It's how we need to look at ourselves. And, and by the way, when that happens, when, I mean, if, 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 if you're having, a, I'll give you kind of a good example. If you're having a hard time singing from your heart to Jesus because of how wonderful he is, it's because it's really hard to sing to a life coach like that. Like I've had some great role models in my life and I just don't, I just don't feel like, oh, I'm so grateful for you. It's like, ah, oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. It was really, really helpful. You taught me how to do that. Someone saves me? Someone gives me life? You have a totally different attitude. And I would argue that we don't spend enough time kind of thinking through that fundamental need that we have had, if, you, if, you're, if you're a believer, it's a, it's, a, it's a need that I had actually, okay? I needed life and Jesus Christ gave it to me, but now I'm still dependent upon him. I guess I still have it in that sense. That, that, is, that is absolutely critical for us to, to kind of get through our heads. Well, let me, let me run through just kind of as I close uh, three different ways. I won't get all through all of it, but I'll get a good chunk of it done. Um, sin's essential nature. What is it? What is sin really described as? And I love, I love these because they're, they're helpful and then they're incomplete. The first one that I described for you is sin as sensuality. There's a lot of people that think of sin as, as, as being overly sensual, right? Lust and um, just kind of uh, this lack of control with our bodies. Sin being a tendency of our lower physical nature to dominate and control our spiritual nature. Paul talks about living according to the flesh. That's what sin is. It's about sensuality. But it's also to note, or important to note, that there are a lot of people who are able to control their physical nature, right? They can be ascetics. They can, they can deny themselves things and yet they have no real degree of helping their sinfulness. The Bible teaches this, doesn't it? Colossians chapter two. I love the teaching in Colossians two, kind of verses 16 down through 20. Paul says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch these things, although having the appearance of wisdom lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. 
Like sensuality, that's why to think of like somebody who is sexually immoral or overly violent or something like that where it's just debauchery. Yeah, well, Paul talks about like hatred and greed. Paul talks about like divisiveness. Yeah, but at least it's not, you know, sexual immorality. Well, the Bible speaks very strongly against those things. So sensuality is clearly a part of it, but I think it's more. The second description that you'll see it is that all sin is selfishness. Reinhold Niebuhr described it this way. This is the belief that pride is the major form of human opposition to God. It is a preference of oneself to God. Sin in every form is selfishness. It is choosing what I want and how I want it over God. And that's what sin is. The root of all sin is is lust or kind of the the desire to to satisfy the body. No, sin sin is about selfishness. But another way to describe it, by the way, I think it's both of those. I don't, I don't know if I want to just pick one over the other. But one of my favorite understandings of sin is sin as, uh, I put down here as idolatry. You could also put as replacement. Sin as replacing God. Sin is a failure to let God be God and places something else, anything else, in the supreme place, which is his alone. Listen to this. Therefore, choosing oneself rather than God It's not wrong because yourself was chosen, but because something other than God was chosen first. It's not just selfishness. What's wrong with selfishness? What's wrong with selfishness is you chose to make something else more important than the one thing that is actually more important. Okay? That is what sin is. Sin at its very root and at its heart is to take God from his rightful place. And when you do that, things collapse. So I'll end with this kind of very important way of looking at things. God loves himself more than he loves everything. Have you heard me say this before? What does God love the most? Himself. Ah, it just sounds selfish. Sure, it does. It it, it sounds actually wrong, doesn't it? If I thought, man, what I love the most in the world is me. I just love me the most. I'm the most important thing in the world. What's wrong with that statement? Don't say it's selfish. It's more than that. What's wrong with that statement? You know what's wrong with that statement? It's not true. If I died tonight, okay? I'm on my way home tonight and I die. Everybody else gonna go on? Right, right? Even my wife, she'll go on. She will cry for a while. She'll go on. You guys will have a funeral for me. You'll go on. So for me to live as though like the world revolves around me, the problem with that is not that it's selfish. The problem with that is just not true. But it is true with who? It is true with God. If God were to cease to exist, which cannot even happen, what happens? So when you take something else and you decide to wrap your life around it and put God on the outside, imagine what's going to happen to that system. That's what sin does. And no wonder your world collapses and falls. No wonder you're filled with fear and anxiety. No wonder I am uh, broken and the relationships around me are broken. Why? Because that's what sin does. Sin is replacement. It takes whatever you want and you can pick the, you can pick family and think that's the coolest thing. You can pick whatever you want. You can pick church. And when you try to have church without God, just don't be surprised that it hurts you. Don't be surprised that you're disappointed and mad and all huffy and puffy. Why? Because nothing, nothing replaces him. We need him that much. Okay, when we come back next week, we're going to try to finish out that lesson and then 
do another one. And I think I may be able to actually do that and get caught up. So um, look forward to seeing you guys on Sunday as we continue through our series. I hope you live in the identity in which we just talked about, God at the center, everything else on the outside. Love you guys.